Bonjour, I'm Craig Johnson. Big week this week, we're talking about Nick Fuentes and anti-protest laws in the United States, Modi's response to COVID in India, some coup threats in France, and of course, a see you in hell from Italy, the man himself, Benito Mussolini. Starting off in the United States, probably the most fun news uh, on the right wing in the United States is that Nick Fuentes, the extremely popular right-wing YouTuber and sort of like conservative, traditionalist, Catholic, quasi-fascist guy, um, has claimed that he is on a no-fly list. Uh, this is coming out of the Daily Dot and also from Nick Fuentes' own Twitter feed. Uh, his claim is that he was trying to board a flight to go to uh, an event where he was going to speak with some more mainstream uh, right-wing media figures, uh, such as like Tucker Carlson, those kinds of people. Um, but that he was refused entry on the plane. Uh, apparently, he originally thought that this was because he refused to wear a mask while sitting on the plane. Uh, but actually, it was because he's on a no-fly list, basically. Uh, now, this has yet to be substantiated. Uh, we don't know for sure, like according to authorities, whether he's on a no-fly list. Uh, but he he's claiming that he is, and a bunch of other right-wing media sources are running with this. Uh, he's been defended by a bunch of people on the right wing and, you know, both the far and mainstream right wing media spheres, including, again, Tucker Carlson. If it is true that he's on a no-fly list, it's definitely because of his participation in the attempted coup on January 6th. He was there in D.C. He was inciting people. He was, you know, talking about retaking the United States in the name of Christ, you know, that sort of shit. Um, Fuentes is really at the forefront of this attempt to transform what had been the alt-right, uh, which was a relatively secular or even sort of like neo-pagan in some ways, uh, formation on the right wing in the United States to, to reformulate it in the direction of Christian nationalism, uh, which is probably gonna be a lot more palatable to mainstream Americans. And speaking of the January 6th coup, uh, reporting coming out of NBC that the total number of people charged uh, for participating in the coup is now about 450. Uh, conspiracy charges have also been levied against uh, members of the Proud Boys and the Oath Keepers. Um, and also of those 450 who have been charged, um, a couple dozen of them are people who work for the government. Um, so these are people who were in the State Department, people who are in different places in the intelligence services, uh, people who are in the military, either active duty or retired. Again, this should not be a surprise to anybody who knows much about how the right wing works or who has been paying attention to the saga of the coup, um, but it is pretty disturbing and shitty. And finally, in the United States, uh, on right-wing news, uh, we have seen a rise in bills uh, that protect people who hit protesters with their cars. Uh, they protect them from prosecution. Um, this is coming out of Jacobin. Uh, laws of this kind have been passed in Oklahoma and Iowa already, uh, but they're slated to be talked about in a bunch of other states. This is specific echoes of the attack in Charlottesville, um, which killed a protester uh, who was there uh, protesting the right wing's Unite the Right rally back in 2007. Also echoes of the Toronto misogynist van attack from some years ago, uh, which killed several dozen people. This tactic was most recently popularized actually by ISIS or ISIL, uh, the Muslim terrorist organization in the Middle East. Uh, using vans and cars and, you know, other motorized vehicles as weapons themselves uh, to just run into crowds of people. Uh, we've seen this tactic used by the right wing in the United States and Canada, as I said earlier, 
And these laws are going to make it easier for people to enact those kinds of attacks, to make these kinds of attacks, because they'll be able to do it with not just relative impunity, but with actual impunity. What this means is that if Black Lives Matter protests, say, take a highway um, in the wake of you know, the acquittal of a police officer who killed a black person, um, it would be legal, arguably, in Oklahoma for motorists to kill them, to just run them over. Um, and these laws are sort of like pinned in such a way as to be about, you know, like, oh, well, the protesters have put themselves in danger. But what they really mean is that it would be possible for right wing people to be prepared to have the plan to kill people with their vehicles who are protesting. Um, and if you don't think that that's the plan they're going to enact, then you haven't been paying attention to the right wing in the United States. Moving to right-wing news out of Asia, we see moves from Duterte, the leader of the Philippines, to deploy ships in the China Seas uh, over oil claims, petroleum claims. Uh, this is a typical nationalist move, uh, you know, like deploying the military when, you know, your poll numbers are declining, his poll numbers are declining because uh, the Philippines is seeing a terrible COVID outbreak. And he, like many other strongmen, uh, is bas are basically just saying like, hey, I can't do anything about it. Uh, so, you know. Um, this is typical right-wing nationalist behavior, trying to distract people with a potential war or, or with potential military action or just with a show of strength. And speaking of strong men who are just sort of wringing their hands and saying that there's nothing I can do about this COVID situation, um, India currently, uh, as I'm sure you know, uh, is undergoing a horrible, massive spike in COVID cases. Um, news from the BBC is also showing that Modi's government, uh, Modi is the Prime Minister of India from the BJP party, which is a uh, right-wing Hindu nationalist party. Uh, Modi's government is seeking to limit the spread of information about this COVID outbreak. Uh, specifically, he requested and was granted Twitter censorship uh, of anti-government tweets. Um, in particular, these tweets were critiques of Modi himself uh, by powerful politicians and also by uh, major film and television stars in India. Um, this is following a wave of censorship of accounts related to the former farmer's strike earlier this year. Um, obviously the plan is to misdirect, right? Uh, Modi is claiming that he is powerless against COVID, uh, that there's nothing that his government can do. Again, this is exactly the tactic that we've seen before from Trump, from Bolsonaro in Brazil, Duterte in the Philippines, um, in some senses from Erdogan in Turkey. All of these leaders uh, who lead by virtue of their, you know, their perception of being like, you know, strong, resolute men are nevertheless, you know, they're sort of like powerless in front of this domestic enemy that is not a person, right? It, it, it's not the left. It's not women. Uh, it's not an ethnic minority. Um, it's a disease that requires a robust civil society response. And this is precisely the sort of thing uh, that these leaders are incapable of providing. So instead of doing anything about it, you know, they talk about how, you know, we just need to be resolute. We need to accept death. Uh, Bolsonaro, you know, for example, says stuff like, you know, everybody dies. Like, we just have to be prepared to die. Um, Modi is saying very similar stuff. And we can expect him to continue to behave this way uh, for as long as he remains in government in India. Finally, some truly surprising news coming out of France. Uh, again, this reporting is from the BBC. We see over 1,000 
active serving members of the French military, joining dozens of former generals, retired generals in the French military, uh, have signed a letter uh, essentially calling for a coup in France. Um, this letter was published uh, first in French, obviously, in a right-wing magazine uh, on April 21st. Uh, and I'll get to why that date is more important later. Uh, the content of this letter is like just straight up right-wing military coup shit. Um, specifically, they're talking about how Islam uh, and like just the religion and also Muslim people as persons um, are ruining France. You know, that's essentially their claim. Uh, and that the places where they have stereotyped Muslim French people living um, impoverished suburbs uh, in the outskirts of major cities um, are, you know, a scourge on the French nation and they're transforming the country and blah, 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 blah. This is pretty standard right-wing rhetoric, uh, both in France and also in the United States and in much of the rest of the world. Uh, a quote from the letter is, the hour is grave and France is in peril. Uh, essentially, the letter is warning about what they consider to be an impending civil war. Uh, presumably that war will be between what you know they consider to be their enemies, uh, the forces of the left, and also presumably just Muslim people in general, uh, and you know that those the opponents of those forces, uh, what they consider themselves to be, you know, the bastion of Western civilization and you know French nationality, right? Now, this is a sentiment that exists pretty you know, pretty widespread in France, but the fact that so many active duty members of the French military and also relatively prestigious retired generals sign on to this letter is particularly disturbing um, because in France, it is illegal uh, for retired or currently serving members of the military uh, to publicly express opinions about politics or religion in this particular way. Um, so not only is what they're doing a crime, uh, it's actually a very singular and disturbing event in French history. This is especially true um, because Marie Le Pen, uh, the most prominent, the leader of the right wing in France, uh, supports them. Uh, she has been uh, literally quoted as being in support of the contents of this letter, uh, being in support of the generals that wrote it and signed it. That's amazing because, like, she was the runner up in the former, in the, like the last presidential election in France. And she's definitely going to be facing Macron uh, in the upcoming presidential election. Like it's almost certain that it's going to be between the two of them. So what this means is that like the leader of the French political right, a real contender for the presidency of France is in support of a military coup, essentially. Now, to be fair, this letter itself does not say the words coup. It doesn't directly call for the overthrow of the French government, which is why I'm going to get back to the date that the letter was originally published, April 21st. Why is that date important? Well, because it is the anniversary to the day of a coup, an attempted coup in France in 1961. Uh, it's called the Algiers Putsch, and it was an attempted coup against then-President Charles de Gaulle, um, mostly perpetrated by right-wing soldiers, uh, specifically generals, uh, who were fighting in Algeria. You know, they were fighting uh, freedom fighters in Algeria who were trying to end uh, France's colonial occupation of Algeria. Uh, these generals knew that de Gaulle was 
you know, getting closer to signing some sort of like peace accord or understanding or starting the decolonization process in Algeria. They were opposed to that. And so they tried to stage a military coup against him. The fact that these generals today published this letter on the anniversary of that coup is just the most transparent signal they could possibly be sending that they actually want and are seriously like threatening the military overthrow of the French government. Uh, it's, it's, it's astonishing. And if you connect that to the fact that Le Pen is apparently in support of them, I mean, it, it, I mean it's just mind boggling. Additionally, we're seeing that, you know, early polls of you know, the French populace and their thoughts about this letter uh, are indicating that a lot of people are in favor of it. Uh, and again, this should not be a surprise. There's a major constituency in many Western countries for exactly this kind of politics. I have absolutely no idea how this is going to shake out. Uh, we're going to have to pay attention. Ending this week's episode with a very special see you in hell. Uh, the originator of the term fascism himself, Benito Mussolini. Uh, Mussolini began his early life as a socialist and a sort of like philosopher dilettante, uh, and actually a military service shirker. Uh, he fled Italy to Switzerland uh, to avoid mandatory military service. And he spent his early political career as you know an Italian politician, mostly not in Italy. Uh, he was an early socialist leader in Trent, which was then a part of the Austro-Hungarian Empire. Uh, he was eventually expelled uh, from the Italian socialist movement uh, over his opinions about World War I. However, uh, that was the big catalytic change for him. Um, he was in favor of World War I, uh, which divided the Italian left as it divided the left in many countries. Uh, so he was expelled from the socialist movement formally, um, and the origins of his fascist politics uh, are in this early period of World War I, 1914. Uh, so after he left the socialist movement, he started a nationalist, quote, fascist newspaper. And he called it a fascist newspaper, the Fasces, um, as a reference to a Roman symbolism of unity, the Fasces, which is a uh, bundle of sticks surrounding an axe. Uh, and the Fasces sort of came to be a way that Italians would talk about uh, political groups in particular. And so calling his group fascism was, was, you know, was about unity, was about strength, and it was about calling attention uh, to the legacy of the Roman Empire. Uh, the early fascist movement called for a revolutionary nationalist vanguard, uh, as opposed to a you know, revolutionary proletarian vanguard. Mussolini joined the war of World War I as a proud patriot now. Uh, he was injured out uh, and went back to his career as a journalist and political agitator. Uh, his ideological position, uh, the ideological position of early fascism, uh, was about Italy being a subjected nation. You know, he sort of took the Marxian logic of there being subjected classes and ruling classes uh, and applied it to nations. Uh, so there were subjected nations like Italy and um, ruling class nations uh, like Britain. Uh, and his idea was that these subjected nations need, needed to you know, overcome their subjection and become the rulers of the world again, you know, achieve their destiny. Uh, early fascism was also about you know, opposition to capitalism and socialism. Uh, it advocated political violence, uh, but also advocated serious industrial development uh, and welfare policies. It was incredibly imperialist uh, and it was in favor of colonial wars uh, on Italy's part. Um, it favored a kind of nationalist irredentism. Uh, irredentism is you know, a belief in the, the, the important wholeness of a country's ancestral territory. 
And so Italians were always talking about, you know, how they needed to conquer parts of the other side of the Adriatic Sea, what is now Croatia. Um, most importantly, uh, the cult of personality around Mussolini himself uh, and a united national culture and society. The fascist party itself uh, was founded in 1919, uh, immediately after World War I. Um, Mussolini's party organized very quickly uh, through both successful sort of normal electoral political organizing uh, and also a massive campaign of political violence. Um, Mussolini himself entered the legislature for the first time in 1921, and as the party continued to grow over the coming year, um, the party staged what was called, or what came to be called, the March on Rome, a sort of like show coup in late October 1922. The consequence of the March on Rome was that Mussolini was designated as the Prime Minister of Italy uh, by the King of Italy, Victor Emmanuel II. Um, Italy remained technically a monarchy throughout most of World War II. Um, as prime minister, Mussolini transformed the Italian political system, uh, not necessarily on paper, but to, you know, through a series of sort of like emergency decrees and sort of like backhandy bullshit stuff, uh, ultimately making the fascist party the only political party in the country, the only legitimate form and place of political expression. The fascist party in Italy was not necessarily particularly organized around logics of anti-Semitism or, or racial violence and exclusion. However, the rise of the National Socialist Party in Germany, the Nazi party, uh, changed that, uh, as did Mussolini's alliance with Hitler's Germany throughout World War II. Uh, joining Germany in World War II proved a fatal blow uh, to the Italian nationalist movement. Uh, Italy was not capable of standing against uh, the Allied military threat as Allied forces invaded Northern Africa and then finally Sicily and then finally actually bombed Rome in 1943, Mussolini lost internal power. Uh, he was imprisoned by the Italian successor state uh, but was then rescued by Germans and appointed as the leader of a Northern Italian puppet state, the Salo Republic. It was there in 1945 uh, that he was finally captured by Italian anti-fascist partisans uh, as he was trying to escape to Spain. Uh, he was shot by them summarily this week in history, April 28th, 1945. So Benito Mussolini, we'll see you in hell. That was 15 Minutes of Fascism, a sadly topical podcast covering global rise of the radical right. I'm Craig Johnson, thanking Sleepy Kitty Arts and Sleepy Kitty Music for our intro, outro, and graphics. And if you found this podcast interesting, useful, or educational, please share it with friends, family, and comrades. If you found it especially interesting, useful, and educational, please check out my Patreon at patreon.com slash 15 minutes of fascism. That's 15 minutes of fascism, all one word. Stay tuned next week for another big death in fascist history, Adolf Hitler. Hitler.